This episode of Voices in AI is brought to you by NVIDIA. As you no doubt know, deep learning, which is of course the fastest growing segment in artificial intelligence, was really only a theory until leading researchers around the world started using NVIDIA's GPUs. Now entire industries are being redefined from healthcare to retail. NVIDIA celebrates the innovators that are turning moonshots into real results, including those featured in this Voices in AI episode. Thank you. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Suchi Saria. Where do I start when going through her career? She has an undergraduate degree in both computer science and physics. She's a PhD in computer science from Stanford, where she studied under Daphne Kohler. She interned uh, as a researcher at IBM and at Microsoft Research, where she worked with Eric Horvitz. She's an NSF Computing Innovation Fellow at Harvard, a DARPA Young Faculty Award winner, and is presently a professor at Johns Hopkins. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So let's start off with the, the biggest, highest level question there is. What, what is artificial intelligence? How do you answer that question when, when, when it's posed to you? That's a great question. I think, um, I think AI means very different things to different people. And I think experts in the field at a high level understand and agree on what AI is, but we never really posit a very concrete mathematical uh, description of it. So overall, our goal is, you know, we want computers to be able to behave intelligently. And that's really the origin of where AI as a field of computer science emerged. Now, along the way, what has happened is, uh, you know, starting from really practical applications, let's say in autonomous driving, or image recognition, or diagnostics, as lots and lots of data have gotten, you know, has been collected, um, people have started to develop numerical tools or statistical methods or computational methods that allow us to leverage this data to build computers or machines that can do useful things that can help humans along the way. And so that then has also become part of AI. And effectively, the question that as a field we often ask ourselves is, you know, does AI really mean useful tools that help human automating uh, tasks that human can, humans can do that computers can be, give computers the ability to also do? Or is it, you know, going at um, properties like creativity and um, uh, emotion, you know, that are very interesting and unique aspects of what humans often exhibit and do computers have to exhibit that to be considered artificially intelligent? And so really this debate about what is, what is intelligence and what does it really mean? And I think different experts in the field have very different takes on it. Well, so you said that though, you think there's, I only ask it because it's a really strange question. Cause if you ask uh, somebody at NASA, what's space travel, you know, you don't, you don't say, well, there's not really, you know, maybe there's where does space begin or how many miles up or something. If you ask in all these different fields, I mean, they kind of know what the field is about. And, and you said something I've never heard anybody say, which is those of us who are researchers in it, we have a consensus on what it is. Um, well, so I would say at a very high level, we all agree, right? So at a high level, it is the ability to systematize or... Uh, you know, help computers behave and reason intelligently. And then the part that is less 
agreed upon is behave and reason intelligently the way humans do. The part, so it's the way humans do peace is important because, you know, some feel we should study humans, we should understand the way humans do it and biological systems do it and then build computers to do it the way humans do it. Others feel, well, it's not so important that we do it exactly the way humans do it. Computers have their own strengths um, and effectively, perhaps what's more important is the ability to do something rather than the process by which we're getting there. So effectively, you know, the so we all agree that, you know, the goal is to be build intelligent machines, intelligent machines that can crunch a lot of data, intelligent machines that can reason to uncertainty, reason to information that's provided, to do uh, what needs to be done, interact intelligently, and by that we mean understand the person that's in front of you and understand the scenario that's being presented to you and react appropriately. And those are all things we'll agree on. And then effectively, the question is, do we need to do it the way humans are doing it? In other words, is it really mimicking human intelligence or is it about giving this capability to machines by whichever way the machines are able to learn that? So, and I won't spend too much time here because uh, it may not be interesting to everyone else, but to say artificial intelligence is teaching machines to reason intelligently, I mean, is it, isn't, I mean, you're using to reason intelligently to define the term intelligence. I mean, doesn't that all obfuscate what intelligence is? I mean, because at one extreme end, it's defined simply as something that reacts to its environment. So a sprinkler system that comes on when the grass is dry is intelligent. On another extreme end, it's something that uh, learns, teaches itself. It evolves like in a way that your sprinkler system doesn't. That it, it's a learning system that it, it changes its programming as it gives, is given more data. I mean, like, isn't there some element of what intelligence is that we all kind of have to circle around if we're going to use this term? And if we're not going to circle around it, it shouldn't. Is there a preferred way to refer to this technology? Yeah, I'd say a preferred way is maybe the the way we think about it, because I, I, I think the other aspect of the field that I really love is the fact that it's very inclusive. The reason the field has moved forward so quickly is because as a field, we've been very inclusive of ideas from, you know, psychology, from physics, from neuroscience, from statistics, from mathematics, and of course, computer science. And what this really means is as a field, we move forward really quickly, and there's really room for multiplicity of opinions and ideas. So I think it's always, uh, you know, the way I often think about it is what's the preferred way or way, you know, a way in which many people like me probably think about it and others might give you um, sort of uh, different opinions about it. But I'd say really fundamental to all this is the idea of learning. That, you know, rather than building brittle systems that effectively have hard-coded logic, where you say, you know, if this happens, then do this, and if that happens, then do this. Um, what's different here is that effectively these, these systems are more, uh, you know, designed to program their own logic based upon data or based upon, you know, and they're learning in a variety of different ways. They may learn from data, data where, you know, in past people have, you know, presented a scenario and you've seen how your other, you know, let's say, in this scenario, you might consider another intelligent human or an expert human is reacting to the scenario and you're watching how the human behaves or reacts. And from that, the computer is trying to learn what is optimal. Alternatively, they may learn by interacting with the uh, environment itself. 
So for instance, if the environment has a way, like in the game of Go, the environment here being the, the board game itself had a way of giving um, feedback. And so a version of feedback would be, you know, if you make a move, you get a, a score attached to whether or not this is a good move and whether or not it will help you win. And they're basically using that feedback. And it's often the type of feedback we as humans use all the time uh, in real life. Where effectively, you could imagine kids, if they, there's a part that's too hot and they touch it, they immediately shrink back. Next time they see a similar object, they're much less likely to touch it. So in the same way, um, and, you know, as adults, we, we go and we often analyze scenarios around us and see something has a positive or negative feedback. And when we see a negative feedback, we sort of register what might have caused it, reason about what might have caused it, and try to do that less often. So this notion of learning is pretty fundamental. And the way by which it learns is really sort of a huge body of work has focused on that, which is how do we develop more general purpose methods by which computers can learn? and learn from many different types of data, many different types of supervision, um, and effectively learn as quickly as possible. You used the word uh, at the very beginning, which uh, was the word understand the person, understand the situation. There's a, there's a famous thought experiment on that, on that word and kind of what the implications are. It's called the Chinese room problem. And just to set it up for the listener, there's a there's a man who speaks no Chinese, we call him the librarian, and he's in this giant room with thousands and thousands of these very special books. And people slide questions under the door to him, and uh, they're written in Chinese. So he doesn't understand them, but he knows that to match the very first symbol in the message to the spine of a book, pulls that book down, looks up the second symbol, that directs him to a third book, I mean, to another book, another one, another one, until he finally gets to the end of this this process and 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 he's instructed he copies down the characters that he sees near the last symbol slides that back out and it's a perfect answer in chinese and of course the man doesn't know the meaning of of what it was about but it, he he was able to produce this perfect answer using system so the the question is does the man understand chinese and of course the analogy is obvious if that's all a computer's doing uh, you know, it's running a deterministic program where it's, and so forth. So I put the question to you, does the man understand Chinese? Does, can a computer understand something or is understanding just a convenient word we use, but clearly the computer doesn't understand anything? Yeah, let's shift our attention for a second away from computers into humans. So I very often think hard about like, you know, let's, like I try to pull out scenarios where I'm wondering, did I, am I effectively running an algorithm and what is my own algorithm? And even considering scenarios where, um, you know, it's like not so prescriptive, perhaps I needed to be creative and, you know, my job involves often being creative and uh, coming up with new ideas frequently. And the question I ask myself is, um, am I just deriving this idea out of previous experiences I'd already had? In other words, am I effectively just engaging in the task of the, you know, let's say I have seen A and B and like, really, this is a pretty creative idea, but what my brain has become really good at is in new scenarios, quickly figuring out what are the relevant elements like A, B, and C in my past that is um, pertinent. And then from that, coming up with something that looks like, you know, a combination or derivation out of something that is really some, uh, so in other words, it's not as big a leap of faith as it really, as it seems to someone who 
who doesn't have my experience or doesn't have my background, well, and when I think hard about it, perhaps it really is just derived from the things I know. And so what this is me getting at is being a little cynical in, uh, about my own ability to, you know, my own assessment of how much do I really understand and like is understanding effectively the ability to quickly parse information, determine what's important, apply lot, rules of logic and, you know, a bit of randomness in order to experiment with ideas and then come up with a new idea. And so I don't really have an answer to this, but I've often wondered, this is maybe what we do and our ability to do this really well and quickly is sort of what distinguishes different humans in their ability to understand and uh, come up with ideas quickly. And so if I think about it from this point of view, it doesn't seem to me a complete stretch to imagine that we could teach computers to do these things. And in fact, we, I mean, I think it's pretty, so, so let me give you an example. So for instance, again, going back to the very popular sort of news story around AlphaGo, when, you know, the AlphaGo started to explore new moves, many individuals who are not familiar with the topic of AI thought, wow, that's amazing, it's being creative, it's coming up with brand new moves altogether uh, that humans had experts hadn't known. But really all it's doing is doing search in some super large space and its ability to do search is pretty expansive. And the other thing it has is really clever ways of doing search because it has heuristics that it has built up from its own experience of uh, you know, doing learning. And so in a way, that's really what humans are doing and that's really what experience gives us. So let's go back to your question of, you know, does the person really understand? So um, I would say, I, don't, I mean, I think my personal issue is that I don't know what understanding really means. And the example I gave you, if you were to define understanding that way, then I think, you know, I guess in today's words, we would say, you know, Maybe that man didn't understand what he was doing, but maybe he did. I'm, I'm not sure. It's, it's not obvious to me, you know, do we measure understanding by the output? The fact that the, you know, you give an input and they give a reasonable output, or do we measure it by, you know, some other metric? Well, you this is a really great question, though. You know, you, um, captured, the whole, you captured the whole debate in, in what you just said, which is the broom passes the Turing test. And, and therefore, Alan Turing would say, because you wouldn't be able to tell if you're the Chinese speaker outside the room passing in the messages, you wouldn't be able to tell that that was, you know, not a, a native speaker on the other side. And so the, the machine thinks. Um, but, but and, and many people in the field have no problem saying the man understands Chinese, but most just kind of at a gut level, that doesn't feel right because we don't, the man doesn't know if that was a message about cholera or coffee beans or, or what, <laughs> no clue what it, any of it is. It's just lines on paper. And so he, he knows nothing, understands nothing, just walks through some little thing that, that just you know, gets him to copy these marks down on paper. And to say that's understanding, just, it's, it, it, it trips people up to say, because the question is, is that the limit of what a machine will ever be able to do? And I, and I will only say one thing, and then I would love your thoughts, which is Gary Kasparov kind of captured that when he lost to, to Deep Blue back in 97. Uh, he said, well, at least it didn't enjoy beating me. 
And so huh. it, it was a, it was a remark that it was, his experience of the game was different than the computer's experience of the game. So, so the only, I, I only so, think it's a, a meaningful question because it, it really is trying to address the limits of what we can get machines to do. And if, if in fact we don't understand anything either, then that does imply we can build AGI and so forth. I agree with you. I think it's a very meaningful question, and I certainly think um, I, I certainly think it's a topic we should continue to push on and understand more deeply. And um, I think the um, and I would even go back to say, you know, I I bet you there are people around you in sort of maybe not as holistic and expansive a context as the Chinese uh, man you described, but you could imagine scenarios where you know, somebody is really good, like their whole job is like, you know, they've sort of learned numerous algorithms like this. And, you know, you could imagine colleagues like that, where they're effectively really good at fielding certain types of questions and pushing data out. And, you know, they may not have built the algorithm themselves, but they understand what the person in front of them is asking and they understand what kinds of answers they need to hear in order to be able to, you know, answer questions in a satisfactory manner, right? So effectively, my point is, even though we think that in the example, he didn't, he, somebody told you he doesn't understand, but it's very possible if nobody had told you that, and he always was able to produce something that was acceptable or of high quality, everybody else would always think of this person as, you know, he understands what he's doing. And, and we probably have people like that around us, at least in narrow context, we experience things like this probably you know, we've all experienced this to some extent. It could be. I mean, and, and if that is the case, and it really boils down to what the word artificial means in artificial intelligence. If, if artificial means it's not really artificial, I mean, it's not really intelligence. It's like artificial turf isn't really turf. If it really means that, then you're right. As long as you don't know that he doesn't understand it, it doesn't really matter. And I'll, I'll, I would love to just ask one more question along these lines because it, it speaks to, again, I'm really intrigued by what we will need to do to build a machine that is equivalent to a human. And, and, and I think your approach of, well, let's start with what humans do and, and talk about computers later uh, is, is really smart. So I, I would put this to you, which is um, humans, humans are sentient, which is a word that is often misused to mean intelligence. That, that's actually sapient. Sentient means you're able to feel things, you're able to feel and usually pain. You can, that you're able to, to feel something, to have an experience of feeling something. And that's um, kind of also wrapped up in consciousness, but we won't talk th there yet. But the idea that you actually feel something. So is it possible for a computer to ever feel anything? So it's clearly possible to set up a temperature sensor that when you hold a match to it, uh, it the computer can, can sense the temperature and you can program the computer to scream in agony when it passes a certain temperature but is it ever possible would it ever be possible for a computer to feel pain or feel anything hmm. so i guess let's step back and ask the following question so two parts to this first is you know, if we have to make computers that feel something, can that be done? And then the second question is, why do we need computers that feel things? And is that really what 
separates artificial intelligence from human intelligence? In other words, um, is that really the key distinction? And if so, can that be built? Right? So let's first talk about how do we build it. So have you heard or have you seen any of the demos out of uh, this terrific company called Hanson Medic? I think it's called Hanson Robotics. Um, what they have is, if you can, if you go online on YouTube, you can Google it, uh, you can search for it. Um, what they built is basically David Hansen. I think uh, he's one of the founders, and effectively, what they built is um, a way to give a robot a face. And he has these actuators that allow us uh, allow uh, you know very fine grained movement. And so, effectively, you see you know full facial features and full facial expressions projected onto a robot. So, you know, the robot can smile and the robot can frown and it can get angry um, and it can stare and express excitement and joy. So effectively, he's sort of done a lot of the work, not just, uh, you know, what it takes to build mechanically those parts, um, but also think harder about, you know, how it would get expressed um, uh, and a little bit about when it would get expressed. And then independently, there's a great work out of MIT where they've, and you know, other labs too, but I'm just picking one example, where they've looked at, um, you know, learning and interpreting emotion. So for example, you might imagine if the person in front of you is angry, you might want to display and re react, want the robot to react and respond differently than if the person was uh, happy and um, excited. And so effectively, you could imagine putting a camera um, you know, uh, seeing the stream coming in, the computer processes it to do classification for what type of emotion is being expressed. Is it, you could, you know, specify a list of emotions, like 30 odd emotions that commonly expressed by humans. From that, the computer then decides what emotion is being expressed, uses that to decide what, humo what emotion it wants to express. And now you can imagine feeding it back into Hansen's, um, uh, program that allows them to generate robotic facial motions that are effect, uh, express I, that are effectively expressing emotion, right? So, so if we had to build it, we can build it. We know how to think about building it. So mechanically, it is not impossible. So now the piece here is the second question is, you know, if we could do this, and if you, and in fact, there are really pretty studies where, you know. You'll see humans. So, for instance, when I was Microsoft Research, there was a uh, robot that would greet you, and you know, it would basically see where you were standing, and it would turn its head to try to point to you. And many, many individuals who weren't so familiar with robotics, so like many visitors who would come and come to Microsoft, who you know, little kids, or um, you know, people who weren't in the technology industry but were just visiting, would often see that and get really excited because the idea of a robot turning its head and moving its eyes in response to, uh, you know, where you're standing was, was cool and w seemed very intelligent. But effectively, if you break down the mechanics of how it's doing it, it's not a big surprise, you know. So, and similarly, now you could augment it by also showing facial expression. And I think, again, uh, CMU, Carnegie Mellon, has a beautiful robot that's called a robot receptionist. Her name is Valerie. They worked on it with the drama department at Carnegie Mellon, and they're basically, you know, they fill the robot with lots of stories. And, you know, it was really funny when I was a graduate student and I was visiting, I remember Valerie for the first time, 
she would basically, you know, you could ask her for directions and she would give you directions on where to go. You know, so I could say, you know, where is Manuela's office? And they would point, the robot would point me to where it is. But in the middle, you know, she would behave like a quote, human, where she would effectively be talking on the phone to her sister and they'd be talking about, you know, what's going on, et cetera, what's, what's been keeping them busy. And they'd hang up and, you know, or she'd put people on hold if a new visitor came in and so on and so forth. So, so what I'm challenging is this concept of like, you know, is it really the lack of human emotion or what we consider to be, you know, human-like emotion to be very special to humans? Is it that? Is it mimicking that? What does it mean to feel pain? And, you know, is it really the action-reaction? Somebody's poking you and you react? Or is it the fact that there's something internal biological that's going on and it's the, it's the perception of that? That could be. I mean, you ask, you ask a good question, does it matter? And there would be three possible reasons it would matter. First, there are those that would maintain that an intelligence has to be, um, has to exper experience the world, that, that, that it isn't just kind of this abstract ones and zeros, it lives in a computer thing, that a true intelligence would need to be able to, to, to actually have experiences. The second thing that might make it matter is, there was a man named Weizenbaum who famously created a program in the 60s called ELIZA, which was a really simple yeah. pro program. You would say, I'm sad. Why are you? It would say, why are you sad? I'm sad because my brother yelled at me. Why did your brother yell at you? And what Weizenbaum turned against it all because what he saw is that even people who knew it was just a program, a very simple program, developed emotional attachments to it. And he said, um, when the computer says, I understand, as the Eliza did, I understand, he said, it's just a lie. There's no I in there and there's no understanding. But the real reason it might actually matter is another thought experiment uh, that I will put to you and to, any, any, uh, to those listening, and it's the problem of Mary. Mary is a hypothetical person who knows everything about color. She knows literally everything, like at a godlike level, she knows everything about about photons and how and cones and how color manifests in the brain. She has everything that there is to know about it. But the, the, the setup is that she has never seen it. She lives in this room that's all black and white and that only has black and white computer monitors and all that. And she walks outside one day and sees red for the first time. And the question is, did she learn something new? Did she learn something new? Is experiencing something different than knowing something? And if you say yes, and, and again, it's one of those things most people just at first glance would say yes. If she's never seen color and she sees it for the first time, yes, she learned something. And if that is the case, then a computer has to be able to experience things in order to learn past a certain point. So do you think Mary learned something new when she saw color for the first time? Or, or, or no, she, she knew exactly what it would look like and experiencing it would have no difference. Well, so you know what Mary knew, right? So did she knew? Did she know ahead of time what a red would look like when she stepped out? Well, she knew everything about color, so she never saw it, but she knew exactly what it would do to her brain at the molecular level, the atomic level, every single thing that would happen in her brain when she saw color, but she'd never seen it. So as a computer scientist, when you say that to me, I would say that representation of what Mary understands or knows is ambiguous. What I mean by this is, I don't know what it means to say, so I understand what it means to say she knows 
you know, at the molecular level, what happens. I understand what it means to say she knows, um, you know, perhaps, so, you know, she knows about the relationship between the different primary colors and the derivative colors and so on and so forth. But are you saying she knows, so is it the case that when she receives an image using her eyes and her eyes represent it in using some form of internal neuronal format, are you saying she knows that? Because if she doesn't know that, then effectively she still has an impartial understanding of what, you know, you know knowing everything about color means. Right? So that, this might be an interesting place where, you know, we think her knowing everything about color. If, if you tell me that, look, if somebody presented a red image to her and she knew what it meant to take that red image and convert it. And these are really hypotheticals, right? So I'm sort of, you know, we have to understand this more deeply and, and, and really study it and perhaps bring in someone who understands human perception really well. But my first step check would be, you know, how does she, what does it mean for her to know everything about color? And what does it, you know, if we present her with image, with an image, you know, her, you know, her visual cortex um, processes it. And so effectively she's getting data, she's Seeing it internally, is it stored in some, you know, computer stored in an RGB format? Um, she's storing it in some format. Does she understand what, the, you know, the, is she aware? Has that whole process happened in her head before? It may not have been due to her stepping out, but the question is, is that something that she is privy to or has knowledge of? And if so, then I would say, you know, when she steps out and if all she's doing is focusing on the color red and if that's the only sensation that is being generated in her head, then yeah, this is going to seem familiar to her because this is something she's seen before. Uh, and and the word experience at that point is kind of, I, I think these are really interesting words that have, and it would be fun to sit down and try to write down formal definitions for what, what they mean. And, you know, generally we think of having seen and having experienced as two different things in, you know, human emotion. But I think from a computer point of view, they don't seem different. In fact, I, I think even as a human, when I think hard about it, I, I, I don't know really what the distinction is. I don't know what it means to kind of know it, to know it and then experience it. And like, what is the difference between those things? Well, I guess the, the, and, and maybe the question imperfectly captures it because it, it's, it's formed very casually. But humans experience the world. You taste a pineapple and, you, um, and, and what that pineapple tastes like, it, tasting it, it seems to be a different thing than knowing something. If I know what it tastes like, it's a different thing than actually having the experience of tasting it. Knowing how to ride a bicycle feels is different than having ridden a bicycle and knowing that how you feel balanced when you get on one. Um, touching something warm feels a certain way that knowing all about warmth does not capture. And so the question is, if a machine cannot actually feel things, touch things, taste things, have any experience of the world, then whatever intelligence it has is, is truly fake. It really is artificial in the sense that it's completely fake. And, and you're right, I think, that the, asking the question, well, why we ask these questions, and a lot of what, what people often are doing is asking questions about people. Are people machines? Um, are, are, you know, are we, 
but and then they had this disconnect to say but we feel and we experience and we know and and those seem to be different than things my iphone can do and so i think i'm trying to connect those dots to say experiencing something seems to be different than knowing something um but you're right it's imperfectly formed so i'll i'll let you comment on that and then let's let's move on to your research because there's so much there i would love to hear more about sure so um so I think I'm going to put, continue to push back a little bit on, I feel like people's experience of what they believe, like, so if, for instance, a machine or an iPhone can do, is very much based on what it can, you know, I mean, it's that we haven't, if you, I think it's easier to think about a single narrow task. And, you know, you could take the task of eating a pineapple or the task of, you know, going and um, experiencing a warm day. But effectively, the, the way I think about it is, I mean, a lot of these capabilities don't exist because, you know, it's not something, you know, most people haven't thought that building a pine, you know, machine that eats a pineapple is a very useful thing, so people haven't bothered to build it. So, but let's imagine I got on, you know, I decided that was important and I wanted to build it. Then what I would do is much like going back to David Hansen, I would try to first find you know, first identify what do I mean by experiencing eating a pineapple? And if the idea is every time I'm given a tasty pineapple, I can eat it and it's delicious and I, my eyes light up. And if I eat a rotten pineapple, I'm like upset visibly. Then I could imagine building a sensor to which you feed the pineapple. This pineapple, you know, runs chemical tests that checks effectively what's in the pineapple and effectively, I'll, and you know, you could start by version one. Version one tests what's in the pineapple, and based on that, now it's hooked up to David Hansen's human taste robot, and effectively generates a reaction, which is excited, or sad, or unhappy, and visibly unhappy or sad, depending on how tasty or not so tasty the pineapple is. And you could even take it a step further by saying, you know what, I'm going to give lots of humans things to eat. And based on that, I will watch what the humans are doing. And then effectively, the computer is just learning by taking the same food and eating it itself. And we didn't even program anything about how to react. And all it did was watch humans eat it. And based on that, it learned that, you know, when certain molecular, when certain compositions exist in the thing it's tasting, then it tends to get happy and less happy. And, you know, you might imagine it starts to mimic. In fact, we could take it even a step further and say, let's give us a group of robots, the same set of sensors, and we have to figure out a way by which they communicate and barter with each other. So effectively, there's an objective function, and the objective function, or like the goal for the group of robots, is to figure out an effective way to which trade. And the trade is such that one group of human, one group of robots loves apples, the other group of robots loves pineapples and they've actually, you know, and the way you know that is effectively they've each lived in different environments where they've, and I don't like the word live because I think it's overinterpreted. What I mean is they've been trained in different environments and in one environment, the ones that love to eat apples have learned how to, you know, get an excited expression with good apples and the other set of robots get an excited expression with good pineapples. And you wanted them to work together, to trade, such that everybody is as happy as possible, then it's completely possible that they will effectively learn 
on their own a trading strategy where they say, you know, the people who don't like pineapples should give away their pineapples and the people who uh, don't like apples should give away their apples. So, so effectively, what I was giving you was an example where I think in these example cases, if we understand, like, what is the objective we're after, which is, you know, is it getting, the, what does experiencing a pineapple mean? Then very often you can turn it into some mathematical objective by which the computer can learn how to do similar things and very quickly, you know, I wouldn't use the word very quickly, depends a lot on the complexity of the task, but it can mimic that behavior or goal. And now the word mimic I use lightly, but effectively it can, you know, behave similarly or, or you know, and one could argue what does similar mean and what does behave similarly mean. But for the most part, you know, we would look at this and be pretty satisfied that it's doing something that we would consider to be intelligent. Like we would consider it to be experiencing something. Unless, and the only block in our head is we think it's a machine. So it's hard because we think of humans as experiencing and we think machines don't. But, but I think what would be really cool is to think about are there tasks where we really experience something that we think there is no way to build a machine to experience the same thing? And what does it mean to experience in that setup? I think that would be interesting. And I would love to hear, you know, the listeners, have ideas and want to send me ideas i would love to hear that well i think the challenge though is that we've we've developed in, in civilization we've developed something called human rights where we say there are things you can't do to a person no matter what you know you can't um torture people for amusement and you can't you can't do these things we, so we have human rights and we extend them actually broadly to other creatures that can feel pain so we have laws against cruelty to animals because they feel pain it sounds like you're saying the minute you program a computer to be able to mimic a frown or to scream and mimic agony that that is somehow an equivalency and therefore we need laws that once the computer can once temperature hits 480 degrees it screams and we we need to outlaw that we need to grant those things life because uh, rights because they are experiencing them and then you would push it one step further to say, you know, when I'm trying to get my car out of the mud and it's smoking and gears are grinding and all of that, that that, that too is experiencing pain and therefore that should be. And, and, and you, you run either one of two risks. You either um, make the notion of, 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 of things that feel have rights not to be tortured. You either make that ludicrous by applying it to anything that you can make have a frowny face on a on a computer, you either try to elevate everything that's mechanical to that, or you end up debasing people by saying, no, you don't actually feel anything. That's just, you're, that's just uh, a program, you know, you're a machine and you don't actually have any experience of the world and you reporting pain isn't, isn't real. It's just you kind of programmed to say that. So how do you have in a world where you have that reductionist view of experience? So personally, I think it's like pretty liberating that computers don't get tired and they don't feel pain. And when I say the word feel pain, I mean feel pain in the sense that, you know, if you, quote, hurt me a lot in a certain way using a pin, I may screech, but also I could shut down. I can stop being productive. But if you take a computer and maybe it has a hard metal shell and you take a pin and you effectively poke it too hard, you know, it's 
the it, it doesn't really do much to the computer because you know it's fine. But then there are other things. For instance, if you plug the unplug the computer, it's dead. And you know there isn't an equivalent notion of unplugging me. So so my for me I I kind of find it liberating that you know we don't have to try to do all of the same things. I the thing that is very exciting to me about it is that. This has its own strength. This machine is effectively a very, I, I, I think there's two takeaways for me that, um, you know, personally, I, I think, one, the fact that it makes me think harder about what I attribute to be special about myself. So effectively, there are lots of things that I used to consider to be very special and would, would you know, well, you know, I'm still special, of course. But what I mean is, you know, I would attribute you know, this deep mystical sense to, which is maybe not so necessary, you know, like the, the, the whole task of programming computers and sort of, you know, developing these learning machines has really made me a little bit more humble about what I consider to be, you know, very hard and not so hard and effectively realizing that, you know, maybe some of these things can be, some of these properties that humans exhibit can actually be demystified a little bit, right? I understand a little bit more about what does it mean to do X and do Y? And it makes me think harder about something that comes so naturally to us. You know, why, how is it that we do it? How is it that different beings do it? And then, and you know, the fact that the computers can do it and maybe it's not exactly the same way, it's in a slightly different way. So just having that awareness is like pretty exciting because it makes things that are every day around us that are pretty rote not so rude anymore. Like it's fun to watch people walk because you're sort of seeing, ah, you know, it's so natural and easy for them. But if you really think about it, there are just so many complicated things we're doing. And when you try to make and teach computers how to walk, you sort of very quickly realize how complicated it is. And it's kind of cool that we as humans can do it. So, so, that, so, so effectively, one aspect of it is me teach, it teaching me a little bit more about myself and realizing you know, the complexity and also sort of the steps or procedure it takes to do some of the things I'm doing. And then the second aspect of it is sort of realizing that, you know, perhaps it's a good thing that like, you know, there are things that the computer is really good at and there are things that it's not good at. And, you know, perhaps taking advantage of that in order to build systems that are useful in practice and can really make us, uh, you know, as a society better off. It's like pretty exciting to me. So I think the idea of like trying to exactly mimic humans or whether we will be able to exactly mimic humans sort of is interesting, but sort of practically speaking, sort of I don't think of it as the most, you know, uh, um, interesting consequence of this, uh, of, you know, or, or the area of most debate for experts in the field. We think more of it as, you know, what are areas where we can really build useful things that could then help us do, you know, make humans faster, make our everyday lives better, you know, um, kind of save us work that would be better off, that's like wrote, that we could, you know, kind of pass off to a computer to do that, you know, so we can, it frees up time for us to do other things and, and those sorts of things. So does that answer your question a little bit more about like human rights? So effectively, I think the issue was, if you were concerned, if you were concerned about, you know, pain and like, perhaps there should be rules about when humans experience pain, we ought to not do X, Y, Z. 
you know, similarly for computers, maybe computers will have different sorts of rules because they experience different sorts of things. And they're good at different, good and bad at different sorts of things. And I think we just haven't come to a place where, you know, um, you know, there's an, a general agreement among, uh, you know, scientists building it about what is and isn't useful and sort of you know, work around those principles. And, um, and, and sort of that's really dictated what gets built. Fair enough. So tell me about, uh, you have an unusual professorship at Johns Hopkins. What is, what is that? Can you talk about your work there? Yeah, sure. So I'm, uh, I'm a faculty in computer science and stuff, but also, so, so I really love my appointment at Hopkins. So my primary is in computer science, but I interact a lot with statistics, but also um, I'm a faculty in uh, public health. Uh, Hopkins is one of the largest schools of public health in the country, um, and in particular, I'm in the uh, Department of Health Policy and Management. Um, and so what's unique about my appointment is, I mean, Hopkins has a very large school of public health, very large school of medicine, um, and I effectively interact in my, on a day-to-day -day basis, um, not just with uh, engineers, and um, uh, but also people who are, you know, clinical experts and public health experts who design policy and really bring sort of a pretty uh, multifaceted view into the kinds of questions we're trying to answer around using computers and, uh, you know, data-driven tools to improve medicine and improve public health. And so what, do you, what does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? What kinds of projects are you working on? Yeah, so um, let's see. So... We've, we've sort of worked on a variety of different, uh, let me give you a concrete example. So, um, you know, one area of study that we spend time on is, uh, you know, detecting adverse events in the hospital. They're called hospital-acquired complications. Uh, one example of this is sepsis. And um, effectively what happens is, let's say a patient is coming into the hospital for, you know, any condition. Uh, sometimes they come in because they've had an infection. This infection goes undetected and uh, turns into what's called sepsis. And sepsis is effectively, um, you know, when your body is trying to fight infection, it releases chemicals. And these chemicals start attacking your organs and systems itself. This happens, you know, in uh, some fraction of the cases. And when it does happen, it ends up uh, sort of causing organ damage, organ failure, and eventually death if it goes untreated. And so this is an example of a place where, you know, um, individuals who have uh, sepsis at the moment, you know, physicians are uh, relying on um, visible signs and symptoms in the patient in order to be able to initiate treatment. And what we've been working on, what my, you know, our lab's work has shown is that it's possible to identify very early based on lots of data. So when they come in, you know, as part of routine care, they're taking tons of measurements. And these measurements are getting stored in, in, you know, electronically. And so what we do is we analyze these measurements in real time, and we can identify subtle signs and symptoms that currently the physicians miss all, you know, that, you know, it's, it's a busy unit. In a 400-bed hospital, there, there's, you know, persons coming in, there are lots of other patients, it's a distributed care team, it's, it's tough. And if the symptoms are not really visible or are subtle, they sometimes get missed. And so 
an example area where we've shown is that, you know, in cases in sepsis, for instance, you can identify very early subtle signs and symptoms and identify these high-risk patients and bring this um, to the caregiver where they can now start to, you know, initiate treatment faster. And so this is interesting, exciting because it really kind of demonstrates the power of computers. You know, they're tireless. They can sit there, process data from 400 patients continuously all the time. You know, we can learn from expert doctors um, what are, you know, signs and symptoms, but not just that. We can look at retrospective data from, you know, 10,000 and 70,000, 100,000 patients and understand things like what are subtle signs and symptoms that happen to appear in patients with sepsis than without sepsis and use that to start, you know, displaying these kinds of information to physicians and now they're better off because suddenly they're missing fewer patients. The patients are better off because they can go in completely, um, you know, happy that uh, they're going to be cared for in the best way possible. And, you know, the computer's sitting there and, and it really has no reason to complain because all it's doing is, it's, you know, it's processing the data and it's good at that. So that's one example. There are lots of other areas. So the other areas uh, we've been spending time is looking at complex patients, patients with the word complex patients is a little... Uh, let me demystify that a little bit. So looking at diseases uh, where there's tons of diversity or heterogeneity in symptom profile. So for example, like diseases like lupus, scleroderma, um, uh, multiple sclerosis, where effectively the signs and symptoms vary a lot across individuals. And effectively really understanding like which person is going to be responsive to which treatment is not so obvious. So again, going back to the same philosophy, if we can take data from a large patient population, can we analyze this to start to automatically, you know, to learn, you know, what is a typical patient, you know, for a given patient, what is their typical course going to look like? And what are they going to be likely to be responsive to? And then use that to, again, start building, bringing that information back to our physicians at the point of care, where they can now use this information to guide, you know, improve and guide their own care. You know, I was so, just. So those are some examples. I was just reading um, some analysis that was saying that before World War II, doctors only had five medicines. They had um, uh, quinine for malaria. They had aspirin for inflammation. They had morphine for pain. I mean, they they had five medicines. And then you think about where we are today, and 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 that that gives one a lot of hope. And then you think about. We kind of have a few challenges. One is that, I mean, even all of the cost and all of the infrastructure and all that, just treating it as a mental problem. One, as you just said, uh, no two people are the same and they have completely different DNA and then they have completely different life experiences. They eat different food for lunch. I mean, they have all of this stuff. So people are, are very different. And then we don't have really good ways to collect that data about them and store it and track it. And so it's really dirty data over a bunch of different, kinds of, of, um, of, of, of patients. So my question to you is how far do you think we're going to be able to go? Like how, how healthy will we be? And you can pick any time horizon you want. Will we, will we cure aging? Will we eliminate disease? Will we get where we can, you know, sequence any pathogen and model it with a person's DNA in a computer and try 10,000 different cures at once and, and know in five minutes uh, how to um, how to cure them. 
what what do you think is or do we even have a clue what's eventually going to be possible yeah um so i think one of the interesting things when i first joined hopkins that i learned very early that you know when we dream of what ideal what an ideal health system should ought to look like and what like wouldn't it be great if we had cures for everything one of the most surprising and disappointing facts i learned was that even in cases where we know what the right treatment is even in cases where we know where we could have treated them had we known up front you know who they were and what was the appropriate sort of uh, therapy for them right now we have many such cases we miss so you know i don't know if you've seen this institute of medicine report that came out i think in 2011 or 2010 i can't remember the date that spoke about you know where they talk about how a third or the or a quarter of the amount of money that's spent in healthcare they think of it as unnecessary waste and unnecessary waste means you know waste because we are overtreating waste because we are waste in cases where you know we kept people longer than was necessary waste because these were complications that were preventable uh waste because you know we gave them we gave treatments that weren't the right treatments to begin with and should have given them something else and i don't think the answer is simple is as simple as oh why isn't our health system better because you know is it because we're not training the most competent doctors is it because uh you know our education medical education system is broken no i think it's that you know if you if you actually if you, you know if you sit inside a hospital and you watch what's going on it's so it's such a multi you know uh disciplinary like um multi person environment where every decision touches many many people including the patient and there's all this information decisions have to be made very quickly um and so sort of what to know about any given individual at any given time to determine what the right thing to do is actually very complicated and it's pretty amazing to me that we're as effective as we are given the way the system is built up so effectively if you really think about it i mean to me part of it is really like a systems problem in the sense that if you know going back like our delivery of healthcare has very much come out of the era where you know there were only so many medications we kind of knew what to do there were only so many measurements the rules were easy to store in our head um and you could really focus on sort of execution which is making sure we we're able to you know look at the individual sort of glean what was ne- necessary and apply you know the knowledge we'd learned in school very quickly and then the tough challenges you know medical literature is expanding at a staggering rate like you noted the number of treatments have expanded at a staggering rate but much more so our ability to measure individuals have expanded and as a result even sort of knowing our notion of like what is a disease and knowing you know it's not just the case that the the rules aren't so simple anymore it's just much more challenging kind of you know rather than saying for every person with sepsis give them fluids no if they have uh uh some are very responsive and some are not responsive an obvious one that clinicians already know about is if they have any kind of heart failure don't give them fluids because it's going to be you know it's going to make the condition worse and so what i'm expecting be going to is i think in terms of you asking me like where is human so i feel like there's a huge low hanging fruit here which is 
I think we can make humans out a lot better by even thinking just harder about, you know, even all the treatments we already have, as we start to make many more measurements and as these measurements are becoming visible to us and in ways that, you know, they're accessible, improving the way by which, you know, improving the precision at which we prescribe these measurements will make a huge difference. And I think that's very tangible, very, very easy to, I think something we'll get to within the next five to 10 years. So there are lots of areas of medicine that will see a huge improvement just from better use of lots of data that we already know how to collect and thinking about the use of that data and improving, um, you know, improving how we target therapy. I'll give you an example, right? Like an area from my, an area of study from, um, that I'm familiar with is, you know, I mentioned earlier these complex chronic diseases, so like scleroderma. You know, in the, they used to historically think of scleroderma as one disease, and you know, any expert who treats scleroderma patients knows that there's tremendous diversity among individuals when they come in. Some have, you know, um, huge impact on the kidneys. Others have others have a huge impact on the gastrointestinal tract, and yet others have huge impact on the heart or lungs, and effectively. You know, when the person's coming in, you're kind of wondering, well, you know, I have an array of medications I could give them. Who is this person going to be? And what should I be treating them with? And, you know, our ability to look at this person's detailed data and understand who this person is likely to be, and then from that kind of targeting um, uh, therapies in a more effective way could already, for instance, you know, improve uh, treatment there, right? So, so I think that's one area where we'll see a huge amount of benefit. The second area that I, I think is basically increasing our ability to measure more precisely. And that's something that's new, you know, you, you can already see whole, whole genome sequencing, microbiome, and there are specific disease areas where, you know, being able to collect this much more easily will make a big difference. And then effectively, they're going to give us, give rise to new treatments because there are pathways that we currently are unaware of that we'll discover in the process of having these measurements and, and that'll lead to new treatments. So, so I'm, I, I think the next 10 years is going to be, you know, very, very exciting um, in terms of how quickly the field is going to improve and, you know, uh, human health is going to improve from our ability to uh, give, uh, administer uh, medications and administer medicine more precisely. Well, that is a wonderful, um, that's a wonderful thought. And why don't we close on that? This has been a fascinating, fascinating hour. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us. Uh, you're welcome. And thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. I'd also like to take a moment and thank the sponsor of this episode, NVIDIA. NVIDIA is, after all, the inventor of the GPU, which has ignited the modern AI era. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might want to check out their AI podcast called AI Podcast. It's available online through iTunes, Google Play Music, and SoundCloud.